If you'll start making your way back to your seats, and as you do that, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. Uh, And while you're doing that, let me just say uh, as an introduction again, uh, I don't know if I said it or not, but we've got some visitors here. If you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here of Newbreed Church. We are thankful that you are here. Um, Man, we got a lot of families out this morning, but that's all right, because God's got here exactly who he wants here. Amen. Amen. I just noticed that, but I'm glad you're here. Thankful that you have come to worship with us. We are coming towards the end of a series through the book of Judges, a series that we've entitled Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise. And I know that we've added a lot of stuff on the front end, and you might be looking at the time thinking, man, it's getting late. I'm just going to tell you I didn't shorten the sermon, and I don't plan to. Uh, Because if we need anything, we need to hear from the Lord. Amen? And so we're going to dive into this. We're coming towards the end again of of our series. And This morning, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 17 and 18 in their entirety. I'm not going to read both of those chapters into your hearing, but I want to read Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and I want to read through verse 6. And so I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word, Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 6. This is what the author records. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you and that I heard you place a curse on, here's the silver, I took it. Then his mother said, my son, may you be blessed by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image and a silver idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image and a silver idol And it was in Micah's house. This man Micah had a shrine. And he made an an ephod and household idols. And installed one of his sons to be the priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we open your word, God, I beg of you, give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people as we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to preach from this idea of Christianity on Christ's terms. Christianity on Christ's terms. So his name was Desmond Thomas Doss. He lived from 1919 to 2006, and his life has been the inspiration of of numerous books as well as two movies. The first one being a movie entitled The Conscientious Objector, and the most recently, the most recent one in 2016, the Oscar-winning film Hacksaw Ridge. And see what all of these books and all of these movies try to capture about Desmond Thomas Doss is the heroic defiance of, of Doss. Now if you don't know his story, I'm going to ruin a movie that's been out for six years, so it's your fault, not mine, if you haven't seen it. 
Doss was a medic in the army during World War II. Now that, that in and of itself, even though that's heroic, it's, it's not what makes Doss so unique. There were some 830,000 medics from the United States in World War II. But you see, what makes Doss unique is that Doss was a Seventh-day Adventist. And as a result, he believed in Sabbath-keeping. He was a vegetarian because he believed that the way that God established the world was just to eat plants and not to eat meat. And what's of significance for our story is he was a man who believed in nonviolence. He was a pacifist. So it, it's somewhat of a surprise when you learn that Doss actually chose to enter the war. He wasn't drafted to enter World War II. In fact, he had earned a deferment because he was already working in a shipyard making ships that were going to be used in the war. But Doss chose to enter the army on his own. However... Because of his beliefs, he entered the army refusing to carry a weapon or doing any harm to the enemy. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that typically doesn't make a great soldier. Uh, My wife has joked many times that she kept getting bombarded by a a recruitment officer in high school, and she basically just told him, listen, I'm not the person that's going to fight. I'm more likely to go give him a hug than than to shoot at him. And they stopped calling. Because they know that it doesn't make a good soldier if you're unwilling to fight. But he entered the army, unwilling to do any harm. And so they thought, well, we'll assign him to be a a medic. And even to the dismay of his commanders, medics would carry weapons in World War II. And he refused, even as a medic, to carry a weapon. But what is so unique about Doss, what makes his story inspiring to so many is that he was eventually awarded the bronze star in large part because of his actions at the battle of okinawa where he personally saved the lives of some 100 men who were wounded but what's so interesting to me beyond his story itself is the popularity that the story gained with the release of hacksaw ridge in 2016 You see, typically movies about people motivated by deep religious convictions don't do that well in the box office, right? You know it. Christian movies don't, they don't make it into the top 10. This idea of restraining yourself because of a commitment to a divine authority, it it usually doesn't sell, sell very well. And the creators, the producers, they knew this. And so what they did is they wanted to paint Doss less as a faithful observer and more as a man following his own personal commitment in defiance to the authority over him. So one person who's actually writing about the film, a critic, he, he's trying to answer the question that someone posed to him, is this a religious film? And this is what he says. He says, I do hesitate to call it a religious movie. What the movie does really well is establish Desmond Doss's strong belief as his own, rather than one he takes entirely from some religious teaching. This is done so that people of all religions can relate to this story, not just those who share his. Now, what this critic is noting is what the producers of the film likely understood. Our culture is a culture of defining your own path, being willing to defy any authority and live your life on your own terms, which in some regards is the complete opposite of the man that Desmond Doss was. He was a man who did submit to an authority, to a divine authority, but the picture is painted as if he's one who who came to this on his own, who was motivated inwardly by this internal conviction And so presented like this, the movie Hacksaw Ridge speaks to our culture. 
This idea that you can accomplish great things if you're true to yourself and if you define your own terms. And hear me, while it's understandable that this would define the culture at large, it becomes dangerous when this is how we begin to define our faith. That we get to set the terms. That we get to define what we do and don't do. And so here at the very beginning of this sermon, let me share with you what my goal is, if you will. I got two things I'm trying to get across, two main ideas. Here's the first. You can't have Christ on your own terms. You cannot have Christ on your own terms. The fact that then nobody say amen tells me this is a sermon we need this morning. Here's the second big idea. God's terms are better than yours. God's terms are better than yours. These are the two big ideas I want to communicate this morning. And I think we see it here in the text. So we've come to the conclusion of the book of Judges. We've been in this series for a few months now. And like the beginning, where there were two introductions, at the end we see two conclusions. And so we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at these two conclusions. This week and next week, and and then we'll finish our series. I just want to tell you, in terms of the book of Judges ending, if you've been waiting for it, I'm going to tell you now, there is no happy ending to the end of the book of Judges. It started off rough with the people failing to take the land and how the people had forgotten and abandoned God and it's only gotten worse. Throughout the book though, God is faithful despite broken leaders, despite constant rebellion. God is faithful to his people and he keeps his promises. We looked throughout this series at the six major judges and explored how whether or not they were, it didn't matter if they were a good judge or a bad judge, at the end of the day, God was the hero of the story. God's always the hero because he will not abandon his people. Now you would think that after all that God has done, the miraculous deliverance the people have seen time and time again, how whenever their backs were against the wall and they cried out to God, even in those moments when they didn't cry out to God when their backs were against the wall and God still showed up, you would think that the people would start to say, you know what? We should probably follow this God. He's a good God. But the book of Judges, it doesn't have a fairy tale ending. It's recounting a real season with real people and a real God. And in the real world, if you don't know this, sin does not always lead to happy endings. Let me say it a little better. Sin will never lead to happy endings. And so in this first conclusion... We see how despite all that God has done, though he is somewhat remembered by Micah, he's not obeyed as he is commanded. And if you recall, the book of Judges has primarily revolved around this cycle of sin. We saw it with each of the major judges. It was the cycle that we followed in every one of the stories. But here in the conclusions, the focus shifts a bit. Rather than the story centering around this cycle of sin, it centers around a statement repeated multiple times in these last few few chapters. It's a statement that we first encounter in Judges 17 verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. That statement will epitomize the ending of the book of Judges. And so the first conclusion, it focuses on one man, a man named Micah. There are three scenes in his story It's almost as if this was built for a Baptist preacher. Three scenes, three points. There you go. But each scene is meant to be reflective, not only of himself, but of the nation as a whole. And each scene is meant to teach us a lesson. Let me show you. 
The first scene teaches us that you can't have obedience your way. You can't have obedience your way. As the conclusion begins, we're introduced to this Israelite man named Micah. And right off the bat, you know that Micah has some issues. Why? Because he just stole money from his mama. We see it there in verse 2. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you and that I heard you place a curse on. Here's the silver. I took it. And then his mother said, my son, may you be blessed by the Lord. So Micah steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Apparently, his mother cursed the silver after she knew it was gone and by implication cursed whoever took it. And so Micah hears this and I want you to see this. Micah's not returning the silver because he knew he did something wrong. He's not returning the silver because of a conviction of sin. It's a returning of the silver out of self-preservation. He didn't want to be cursed. He's simply trying to avoid the consequences. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what we've seen with Israel throughout the book of Judges. Every time Israel cried out to God, it wasn't because they understood that they had broken the covenant. It wasn't because they believed that they were in sin. It was because the consequences of their rebellion were too much for them and they couldn't overcome them on their own. It's not because they knew they did something wrong. It wasn't because of a real conviction of sin, an understanding of a broken covenant. It's because they didn't want the consequences Now again, let's pause here because Micah has something to teach us and here it is. It's a lesson we've seen before and it's as if God wants to reiterate it to us again. Here it is. Faithful obedience requires more than a desire to avoid consequences. Faithful obedience requires more than a desire to avoid consequences. Let's be honest for a minute. I know, I know this is going to be a heavy sermon, but this whole series has been heavy, heavy, so here we go, all right? How much of our obedience primarily stems from wanting to avoid bad consequences and that's the only reason we're obedient. Let's be honest. You can talk back. That's me so often. The only reason I'm obedient is just because I don't want the bad thing to happen to me if I'm disobedient. Whether that be a physical consequence or a spiritual consequence. But what I want to say clearly, and I want you to hear me, not wanting the consequence of sin is a good thing. It's just not a sufficient motivation to continue in obedience sustained, faithful obedience has to flow first and foremost, not out of a a desire to avoid consequences. It has to flow out of a genuine love for God. Because here's the reality. If we are loving God, obedience will come naturally to us. It will be the natural outflow of our life. And we often get the order wrong, right? We get it wrong in the church. Think about it. Someone comes into Newbury. Not, we'll pick a different church. New breed, you know, we don't, we don't make mistakes. Um, somebody goes into a church, right? And they say, I've just trusted in Jesus. Somebody told them that their sin separates them from God. And that there is a God who loves them so much that he sent Jesus to live the life that they should have lived, but they can't. But he died the death they deserve to die. And he was pierced for their transgressions. He was crushed for their iniquity. And they put this man in in the grave and something amazing happened. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And they say, I believe that. And we say, praise God. And so what's the first thing we do? We give them a list of rules to follow. Now you got to start reading your Bible. Now now you got to start praying. You got to get involved with the community group. You got to start tithing. And that's how we start discipling them. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Those aren't bad things. 
See, I want you reading the Bible. My sermons are easier when you come in here having actually read what we're going to talk about. It makes my job a lot easier. I want you to read the Bible. I want you to delight in what God has to say to you about himself. I want you to pray. I want you to tithe. But often we start with the wrong thing. We start with the list of things that, have, that you have to do. Again, start reading the Bible. Start tithing. Start praying. And none of those are bad. But we wonder why our discipleship is weak. Because we start with obedience and fail to show people why God is even infinitely more worthy of their love than they realize. We give them a list of things to do rather than a God to love. And it won't sustain them. Let's be honest, it hasn't sustained you, has it? What I'm trying to tell you is that faithfulness requires more than following a list of rules. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Faithfulness requires a genuine love for and submission to a God who is worthy. And that's just not where Micah is. He simply wants to avoid the consequences. So let's keep reading the end of this first scene. It says, then his mother said, the end of verse two here, then my mother said, my son, may you be blessed by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother and he his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit, listen to this, to make a carved image and a silver idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image and a silver idol and it was in Micah's house. This man Micah had a shrine and he made an, an, an ephod and, a household, and household idols and installed one of his sons to be his priest so here's here's what's happening the mother so thankful to have her money back offers a blessing on her son and the mother consecrates the silver for the lord but gives it back to her son for what purpose for the son's benefit to make carved images and a silver idol and we got to note the author wants us to know michael already micah already has a shrine at his home that word shrine literally translates in the Hebrew as a house of gods, not singular, plural. He already has a house of gods. And so then he takes one of his sons and sets him up to be a priest. Notice he's not a Levite, so he's not qualified to be a priest. But that doesn't matter. And he begins to worship false gods in his house. So, so let's just use the Ten Commandments as our guide for a minute. Can we do that? We've already seen Micah covet his mother's stuff. And fail to honor her by stealing from her. So he breaks the fifth, the eighth, and the tenth commandment. He makes and worships idols, breaking the first and the second commandment. And then Micah's mother uses the name of God to bless the making of idols, thus breaking the third commandment. And so in, verse, in four verses, six of the ten commandments are already broken. But don't worry, God will make sure to communicate next week that the other four are broken then. But here's where it's interesting with Micah, right? In all of this, Micah appears to be a religious dude, doesn't he? I mean, he appears to be a religious man. He, it looks like he wants to honor God. Like he's got all the stuff set up. He, he cares about having a priest. Like, like, you know, the name of the Lord is invoked. He seems to be a religious guy, but it's all on his terms. One commentator notes this. I found it helpful. He said, on the surface, Micah and his mother may appear to be good religious people. They walk the walk, they talk the talk, they bless in the name of the Lord, they give generously to him. This is the trap of the religious system in the human heart. It seeks to worship God in its own way and not according to what has been revealed in his word and stipulated in his covenant. 
I wonder if there's anybody else that, that's gotten really good at walking the walk and talking the talk, but it's really just on your terms. Now, before we judge Micah too hard, we have to acknowledge, honestly, that the same temptation that Micah is giving into is the same temptation we face day in and day out. It just might look a little different. See, we too are tempted to be faithful to God on our terms. We too are tempted to take God's things and use them our way. I mean, we see it broadly in the church. I'll step on toes right now. Just consider marriage. A gift given to us by God to reflect the beautiful gospel and the relationship between Jesus and his church. Marriage belongs to God. It was created by him. It's defined by him. It was given by him. And ultimately, it is for him. And we have watched as a nation has redefined marriage on its own terms. And even more devastating, the church in large numbers has bought into that redefinition. Marriage isn't ours. It's God's. And we've taken it and tried to use it our way. But it's not just out there. Maybe that's too broad. That's too... That's too controversial for you. That's fine. We're tempted to take God's things and use them our way on a personal level as well. Take prayer. How many of us use prayer primarily to get what we want from God rather than it being a means of deepening a relationship with him? How many times do we only cry out to him when we want something? Like we skip the hallowed be thy name part and just go right to the give us this day our daily bread. Take worship. Worship through song. How many of us care more about the song we sing and our dignity while we sing it than we do the God we are singing to? I'll press in and get even a little more personal. Take your money. Oh, yeah, that's God's too. How often do we take the financial gifts that God has given us and rather than give him the best, we treat him like the waiter who gets the tip after we've already paid for the meal we really want? See, we want Jesus when it's convenient. Let's just be honest this morning. It's heavy. We're just going to dive in. How, how often do we want Jesus when it's convenient, on our terms, when it serves our ends and what we want? We want Jesus as Savior. We don't want him as Lord. But you can't have one without the other. Now, again, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm just trying to acknowledge the human condition that we have to wrestle with. And please hear me. The story of Micah in Judges 17, it is positioned to teach us that even partial obedience is full disobedience. You cannot have obedience on your terms. Either Jesus is king or somebody else is. And that's how the first scene ends in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now, please understand this. This statement that you will see repeated throughout the end of this book, it is a, it's a statement by the author of perception, not reality. We have to understand that. Here's, here's what I mean. The reality is, there is a king in Israel. There has always been a king in Israel. God has always been sovereign over his creation, and he has always been king. It's not an issue of reality, it's an issue of perception. They just didn't want that king. They wanted a different king. And what Michael, Micah reveals is that, I keep saying my name, maybe I'm, all right, Lord, I got it. What Micah reveals is that obedience on your own terms, thank you, always leads to the wrong king. Always. And so in verse 7, we see how his story continues. We transition to the second scene, and here's the lesson it's meant to teach us. Not only can, can you not have obedience on your own terms, you can't use obedience to manipulate for your ends. You can't use obedience to manipulate for your ends. 
So the story picks up and a new person has entered the story. Let me, let me just read, starting there in verse 7, I'm going to read through the end of chapter 17. It says, There was a young man, a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who was staying within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. And on his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where do you come from, Micah asked him. He answered him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I can find a place. And Micah replied, stay with me and be my father and priest. When he says father, he means teacher. Be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year along with your clothing and provision. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young, the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Here it is. I want you to see verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. The purpose behind the entirety of Micah's actions in verses 7 through 12 is revealed there in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me. You see, for Micah, we see again, it wasn't ultimately about being faithful to the covenant. It wasn't ultimately about recognizing the worth and majesty of God and trying to honor him. It was about trying to use obedience as a way to manipulate God for his own ends. Now, I know we don't know anything about that in this church. We've never tried to use obedience, use the things that God's given us for our our ends. Nobody here has ever faked spiritual maturity in in order that others would think more highly of them. I know nobody here has ever acted like everything was good and great. There was no sin that they were battling because they didn't want anybody to think less of them. I know. I know nobody has ever tried to use the gifts of God that he has given to you to elevate yourself and your position rather than give God the glory that's due his name. I know it's not us, so since it's not us, let's go back to the story of Micah. And I got to hand it to Micah. I just got to be honest with you. I got to hand it to him because at least Micah said what so many of us act. At least he had the nerve to say it. Now I know the Lord will be good to me. If I'm obedient to God, only good things will happen to me. If I'm obedient to God, my life will be comfortable and easy. If I'm obedient to God, surely he will make sure that my health is intact, that my bills are paid, and that I never have a hard day. At least he had the nerve to say it. But do we not so often live like that too? I've been faithful, God. Why are you allowing this hardship in my life? Do I not deserve better than this? Well, can I tell you what Micah's biggest mistake was? The mistake that I think we can make if we're not careful? He misunderstood the goodness of God. And he misunderstood it in two ways. See, first, he misunderstood what makes God good. You see, God's goodness is not something he dispenses as a result of appropriate behavior. God's goodness is not primarily a descriptor for what he does. God's goodness is indicative of who he is. Let me just make it plain for you. God can't do anything but what is good because everything that he is and every move that he makes is the very definition of good. But here's the second way he misunderstood it. I think this is where we can get jammed up too. Maybe I'll talk to myself. This is where I get jammed up all the time. He didn't just misunderstood what makes God good. He misunderstood the primary way we experience the goodness of God. You see, when Micah makes this statement, now I know the Lord will be good to me. He makes the goodness of God conditioned on what his experience is. 
See, what he's saying when he says, now I know the Lord will be good to me, is he's saying, now I know that everything will go well. I will prosper in this world. I will have riches. I will have prestige. And again, he is trying to use obedience to manipulate God for God's favor. One commentator noted this, that Micah has constructed a religious environment in which he thinks he can manipulate God. But what he fails to realize is that the goodness of God is not primarily revealed by your earthly prestige, by your prosperity, God's goodness is not revealed primarily in your health and your well-being. It is revealed in his presence with you. Let me preach it like I feel it for for a minute because I feel like we're tired. That's okay. I'm I'm, going to get us there. I know that God is good. And it's not because my bank account is full. It's not because my marriage is exactly the way that I want it. It's probably my fault. It's not the way I want it anyway. But, but my children don't act the way I want it. Let's call it what it is. I fought with them the whole time trying to worship this morning. It, that's not where I see the goodness of God. It's that when my marriage is a mess, that when my finances are a mess, when my children are acting a fool, when I am struggling, when I am hurting, that God is with me in the midst of all of it. What makes God good, what defines his goodness is not the location, it's not the situation, it's his presence. I know that God is good because I've experienced his goodness when I'm on the mountaintop because he's right there with me. But I know that God is good because I've experienced the valleys and he's been right there by my side in those two. God's goodness is primarily experienced not by him giving us the things of this world, but by giving us himself. And can I just tell you that obedience is not a weapon that we wield to get the things of this world. Obedience is the way we live in order to walk with this God who has made himself available to us through Christ. I'm just going to tell you flat out, fam, if your, if your picture of the goodness and the blessing of God is all of the earthly prosperity, heaven's going to be really rough for you. Because the glory of eternity is not that you get all the stuff you didn't get here. It's that you get God forever. And that is what makes it glorious. So this is where the second scene ends. You see Micah, and it's not just his struggle. His struggle is a reflection of the nation of Israel as a whole. It's a pattern of idolatry. He wants to be king. He wants God to serve his ends. It's idolatry. But here's the third and the final scene and the lesson that I want you to see. Idolatry can't sustain you. Idolatry can't sustain you. So the scene momentarily shifts in verse 1 to the tribe of Dan. Don't worry, we're coming coming back to Micah in just a minute. But we read in verse 1, In those days, there was no king in Israel. There it is again. That marks the shifting of a scene, that same statement. There was no king in Israel. And the Danite tribe was looking for territory to occupy up to that time. No territory had been captured by them among the tribes of Israel. So for the sake of time, let me me summarize this story for you a bit. Dan's out there looking for, the tribe of Dan's looking for territory that they can occupy. Do you know why they're looking for territory? Because they failed to do what God told them to do at the very beginning of the book and drive out the inhabitants of the land that they were given. So now they're looking for a different territory. Uh, They're they're trying to figure out where they they can land. And so they send out five scouts to basically go around, look at all the land, 
find one that would be good for them, but also that they could easily conquer because, you know, let's not trust God to deliver us here. Let's just make it easy enough for us to do it on our own. So they send out these scouts, and these scouts, as they're going around looking for this land, they come across Micah's priest, and, and he's a Levite, right? So he is qualified to be a priest, and they recognize, the text says they recognize his accent. They know where he's from. <clears throat> so they strike up a conversation with him. What are you doing here? Why are you here? And the Levite tells them, tells them who he is, tells them what he's doing, tells them where he's a priest. He tells them all about Micah and Micah's house. So the men ask this priest if God's watching over their journey, and the priest just says yes, which, which God's not blessing this journey. They've already failed. They're on this journey because they have not been faithful to God. But once again, the name of God is invoked for selfish reasons. So the men continue on. They find this beautiful land. It's a land with plenty. It's got resources, and the text even makes it known, and it's an unsuspecting people. So basically what it's saying, it's kind of showing Dan to be cowards right now. If like, these are people they could easily conquer. All right, they're not going to put up much of a fight. I'm going to just press on. So the tribe of Dan, the scouts go back. They tell the tribe. The tribe goes, great, let's go get that land. So they, they take off. But on their way, all of these men who are going to go conquer this land, they stop at Micah's house. Now let me pick up reading in verse 14. I'm going to read through 26 of chapter 18. It says, The five men who had gone to scout out the land of, of Laish told their brothers, Did you know... That there are an, an ephod and household gods and a carved image and a silver idol in these houses. Now think about what you should do. So they detoured there and went to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and greeted him. The 600 Danite men were standing by the entrance of the city gate armed with weapons. Weapons of war. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the land went in and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol, while the priest was standing by the entrance of the city gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when they entered Micah's house, they took the carved images, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol, and the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they told him, be quiet, keep your mouth shut. Come with us and be a father and a priest to us. It's better for you to be the priest for the house of one person or is it better for you to be the, the priest for a house of one person or for you to be a priest for a tribe and family in Israel? So the priest was pleased and he took the ephod, the household idols, the carved image, and he went with the people. They prepared to leave, putting their dependents' livestock and possessions in front of them. And after they were some distance from Micah's house, the men who were in the houses near it were mustered and caught up to the Danites. They called to the Danites who turned to face them and said to Micah, what's the matter with you? that you have mustered the men. And he said, you took the gods that I have made and the priest, and you went away. What do I have left? How can you say to me, what's the matter with you? And the Danites said to him, don't raise your voice against us, or angry men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. And the Danites went on their way, and Micah turned to go back home because he saw that they were stronger than he was. Oh, preach this text if I just had time. But did you catch it? The irony of this story? The truth that your idolatry can't sustain you? Right? Micah crafts an image of God. And then he worships it. And then he gets a priest to help him worship it. But then some men come and steal his God from him. And notice this. The priest didn't stop it. The gods he was worshiping, they didn't stop it. 
So what did Micah have to do? He had to fight to keep what he created. You see, that's the thing with idolatry. If you create the thing you worship, then you have to defend the thing you worship. And if you have to defend the thing you worship, is it really worth worshiping in the first place? But that's where Micah is. And and the rub of it is, he's not strong enough to save his God from his enemies. So he says, you took the gods that I, I have made and the priest and you went away. What do I have left? Church, I'll say it once. It's almost like God wants me to say it again. I don't need a God who depends on my might to keep me in his presence. I'm sorry, I don't need a God who depends on my might to keep, yeah, me in his presence. I need a God who has enough might all by himself to keep me. I don't need to worship a God who I have to craft with my own hands. I need a God who molded me and made me in his image. I don't need a God who I have to save from my enemies. I need a God who can save me from my enemies. And what this last scene is trying to communicate is that, is that not only for Micah, but for the entire nation of Israel, their idolatry could not sustain them. Their idolatry was insufficient to deliver. And, and this is where the book's going to end. Like, we got a couple more chapters of God showing the mess that they are in, but this is where it's going to end. It doesn't end with a happy ending because time and time again, Israel has chosen a God they have to defend. Israel has chosen a God they have to save. Israel has chosen a God that they have to deliver. Meanwhile, they need saving. They need delivering. They need protection, and they are insufficient to do it, and the gods that they have worshipped are insufficient on their own. But can I tell you that while the book of Judges ends without a happy ending, we praise God that the story of his pursuit of his people doesn't stop when the author of Judges puts his pen down. Because the God that we need would show up. And he is not an image created by human hands. He is the perfect image of God because he's the firstborn of all creation. He is a God who does not depend on my might to keep him, but he has the strength to keep me. He is a God who is not crafted by human hands because everything was made by him. He is a God who does not need me to save him because he alone is a sufficient savior. And the Bible tells us that he is the image of God. What Micah thought he could craft, God had to send. He is the exact nature of his imprint because he is God. He came not to be served, but to serve and to pay the ransom for many. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should, we should have died. And three days later, he rose from the grave. He is a sufficient savior. He is a divine deliverer. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his name is Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if Jesus is Lord, then he gets to define the terms of our faith. But can I tell you, that's a good thing because he and he alone is good. He will never falter. He will never fail. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. God knows what is best for you beyond what you could dream or imagine. And so it's that God that we place our trust in. And Israel failed to see it. They failed to see it. They had a history of God's working and his faithfulness and his deliverance, and they forgot. And so my plea with you this morning for us as a church is that we would never be like Israel, where we would forget what God has done. That's why even things like we did this morning matter so much. 
We are building things that we can look back on and say, wasn't God faithful? Hasn't he been good? Is he not with us? And that's the God we trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. God, and there are times where your word is hard, where it pushes us to reckon with the fact that we might just not be as great as we think we are. But you are greater still. And God, we thank you that because of your love for us, God, we have a God that we don't have to protect. We have a God that we don't have to defend. We, don't, we have a God that we don't have to save because you are sufficient all by yourself. So God, I pray that we would be obedient, that we would believe that you are a good God, that we would believe that you are a faithful God, that we would be willing to die to ourselves and live for you every moment of every day. I would give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.